All right, Inappropriate Earl is back. We burned out about four episodes in eight days. I had a real hot streak of people who wanted to come on my couch. And believe me, plenty of people have, if you know what I'm saying. If there was a black light on this couch, the whole couch would be blue. Today, I have a very special guest because a lot of people ask me, Earl, why do you call your podcast Inappropriate Earl? Well, many years ago, about 2005, maybe 2004, I was a staff writer on the legendary talk show that could be, that should have been, that would have been the Ian Bag Show. And the main writer on that show is my next guest. And, you know, it was a kind of fly by the seat of your pants operation there. I mean, Louis Anderson was the, you know, our cheerleader. And I don't know if uh, he produced any cash because this show was pretty low budget. Had the uh, budget of a Lorenzo Lamas uh, Laserdisc movie. But we would do sketches and whatnot. And uh, me and my guests came up with a character of inappropriate Earl where I would like, of course, none of them were ever shot. Uh <laughs> You know, we came up with like, I'm a waiter. There's a guy and a girl on a date. And I would just uh, ask them what their order would be. She'll take the rigatoni. He'll take the steak tartare. And then I would say, you're going to fuck her in the ass and just walk off. Inappropriate Earl. Even though they were never made, I have great fondness for this man. And this might be the longest intro before he gets to ever, but this man deserves it. Please put your hands together. And although the episodes with women do much better than the ones with guys, to be quite frank, this guy is a good dude, Mr. Brian Irwin. Thank you, Earl. I, why, do the, why do the women ones do better? You know, I think my fan base uh, skews uh, heterosexual. <laughs> well, we'll try to have the most heterosexual... Uh, not Paul Linnish uh, uh, conversation we possibly can. I love Paul Lynn, to That's be great. completely honest with you. And uh, we're going to go on Facebook Live as well. But, oh, okay. you know, every time I do it, I'll leave you a pillow. I just How many to... uh, forgotten children are on this couch? You said blue light. Um, let's just say. Uh... <laughs> could you, could, is, there, is there a full city, a town? <laughs> what would be the. Uh... You know that scene in Rocky 2 toward the end when he's jogging and the, about the 300 kids are running behind him? Let's just say Rocky Two could have been filmed on this couch, just blasting away on this couch. Oh, well, There's a one time I not, I didn't wear my gloves, and yet I wonder why I can't get celebrities on my podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, oh, inappropriate! Earl. Well, and the funny thing is, on this podcast, I've I don't think I've ever been inappropriate. I don't even remember how that. I think that just came by the way you carry yourself. That was kind of the joke. Was just like you're not overly animated, right? And so I'm Ian are, Bag like you are now. Um, uh, uh, but no, you you were just kind of like um, you were very you had a, you have a very dry sense of humor, uh, a great straight man in that world, and and we, you know with your deep voice. And back then, I'm assuming your listeners know this. Um, you know you you had a thing for hockey jerseys, which. You you had a very specific look. You had a lot longer hair. You know, you had it was you were you were a different person back then. 
as well, far as the look goes. You're the same guy, but as far as the look goes. I well, it's played off of that. It's funny. Uh, the hockey jersey look came to an end on an Ian Bag-related uh, issue, I guess you'd say. Were you on that pilot we all did one night stand up? Barry Katz in the main. Are you? Were you married at that time? I was married, but I, I, uh, I think I warmed up the room because I couldn't. I, I can't really go on dates when I'm married. So, well, that's well, separate. You can have date nights, but you know, I don't think that's fun. That doesn't make for a fun show. Well, that separates you from most of the comics I know. <laughs> uh, oh, you're married. I mean, one the other night at the patio of the comedy store. It was a lot of hot looking babes there that night. We are not officially on Facebook Live right now. Oh, I'm just okay. trying to set it up here. I'm a one-man operation here. You do a great job. Not really. I mean, tilted this way, but hey. You, so I'll, you give me in a Dutch angle like Batman 66. Right. That's totally fine. I'll be the villain. And this guy is taking off his wedding ring. And like, I'm not going to say his name, but like, uh, Comic A, what are you doing? He's like, Earl, I love my wife, but I got to get some pussy tonight. Okay, cool. Well, I'll see you at roast battle. <laughs> You know, here's the thing. Why? What's the point of taking off the ring? Well, especially right in front of the girl. It's like, you know, she's not Stevie Wonder. She sees you like, you know, like you're digging for fucking gold to get the ring off. But, uh, you know, that's uh, how it works. If you're going to go full douche, just be the douche. You know what I mean? Don't try to pretend you're somebody else. I guess guess my point is if you're going to do it removing the ring i mean if it's like you know whatever but getting back to that you did warm up the crowd now i remember i did yes it's called one night stand up Barry cats i still love the idea of the show that Mm -hmm. it's a dating show she never uh sees you but she hears your act Mm -hmm. and as i was about to go on stage i'll never forget i had a new york rangers matthew barnaby preseason jersey and i hear whitney cummings calling my name i'm excited i thought well this is the first time i'm going to be on tv i don't have to go on last comic standing because i don't really like that show but i get to go up in front of the guy who created it and he grabs me by the shoulder i said what the fuck are you doing i'm like i'm next and i literally hear whitney calling my name he said you can't wear that jersey i'm like why not he's like the logo you fucking idiot and looking back now i'm sure the new york rangers wouldn't want to be associated with my <laughs> my Duke lacrosse rape joke. Right. And so I took it off and I had a really gaudy affliction shirt on underneath and just bombed for 10 minutes. I was horrible that night. You, and you blame the lack of the jersey? You let you, the jersey get into your head? The it, look? You know. I, Is I, that what you're saying? I, I'm not going to say. I still stand by the first joke I did that bombed. Uh, it was like having Kiss take off the makeup two seconds before they hit the stage. I had never performed without a hockey jersey That is on. true. That is true. And, uh, you know, I, in, I'm, I'm a better comic now than I was back then, certainly, but I thought, well, it's a dating show. I'm going to go deep on the first joke. <laughs> and it was a joke about the Duke lacrosse rape situation. And Classic. It's you know it's a you were there that night packed main room cameras everywhere agents managers I mean it's a you know big probably the biggest show I've ever been on at that point and I did the Duke lacrosse joke about hey you know uh, the captain had a degree in economics so if anyone knew forty seven didn't go into two it was that guy nothing 
two people laughing in the back david taylor <laughs> of course and ian bag <laughs> not to be surprised yes so uh your target demographic you know uh i yeah i don't know but uh <laughs> so we've known each other through that open mics open mics i remember back amagis i thought you were kind of this goes to show you never judge a book by its cover i remember one that you were hosting amagis and you were kind of a dick not you had a um aloof personality mm -hmm. back then i thought god this guy's kind of a dick i was probably a dick well, I wasn't the greatest guy on earth either. No, but I was probably a dick. I mean, look, you have to. I, I'm at a point in my life where I can I can admit, like my my life arc, where you know where I've done good and I've done bad. But I was um, back then. God, that's even that's going further back. That's like 2003, two thousand one, maybe even. I mean, that's back when. And I, I know I'm probably going to lose a few listeners because I'm going to throw out some L.A. Uh, legendary open mic. And I don't like saying open micers because to me that's dismissive. Yeah. Uh, but I guess when you call someone a character actor, it's kind of like, no, I'm an actor. Uh, a few local LA legend comics like James Painter era. James Painter, yeah. Uh, Andrew Solomson, mm -hmm. who I think still does comedy. Uh, but just to show you the wildness of Amagis, one night you weren't there and you had James Painter host <laughs> and he was bringing up Andrew Solomson. And Andrew, uh, back then, was, I would say, maybe close to four to 500 pounds. Uh, I mean, he was probably as big as Ralphie May. Yeah. And uh, James Painter gave him, like, the rudest intro I've ever heard to this day. Like, and I can't do a good James Painter impression, but he's like, uh, this next guy, if you like boring fat guys who read their jokes off of Palm Pilots, you're going to love this guy. And... <laughs> You know, just that's kind of the the jungle that we were in. Look, those were dark days, man. I was I moved out to Los Angeles in 2000, coming fresh off a divorce, so I was a little bit douchey, right? Then you get into the very competitive open mic scene, right? It's like real estate. I mean, there's you were at some of it. There's some nights. There's 40, and maybe it's still like this. There's some, 40 people going up doing three minutes. I mean, it's. It's crazy. I remember there was someone open mics like people like, yeah, you, you can't get up tonight. It's like, it's an open mic. You can't get up. Just like keep going with it. It was, it was very competitive back then. And I think that um, to my discredit, I think I, I took at times open mic too seriously, like being the guy in charge of open mics and then eventually being in charge of shows like actual book shows. I think I let it get to my head a little bit. So there probably was a level of douchiness. I, I don't think I was like, I don't think anybody would ever look back and say you were a complete fucking asshole. Sorry for not allowed to swear or whatever. I apologize. But I was. Um, you are. Okay, good. I've had but, five guests say the N-word on this podcast. Yeah, that, I won't do that. You're going to edit that out, right? Yeah. Nope. <laughs> no, but so so my point, my point is uh, I probably was a little bit. But I always liked you. Oh, yeah. We got, you know, it's like uh, the time, uh, you know, I started at the comedy store and then I went to Potluck. And saw Brody Stevens make a uh, open mic or cry. <laughs> you know he had bombed, and you know no big deal. Everyone bombs in the OR. Uh -huh. It's a very very tough room, uh, even under the best of circumstances. Uh, and Brody was like, "Where are you from, man?" And the guy's like, "La Jolla." And Brody was like, "Well, that drive just got a lot longer." <laughs> I was like, "This guy's a dick." So I didn't. I started at the store, but I left there very fast. 
Uh, Those were dark days, though, too, Earl. So, oh, I mean, the darkest. Like, people go up there now, and, you you know, there really isn't a bad night at the store. But, like, I don't know, maybe a Sunday night can sometimes be a little light. It's still packed. Yeah. Like, Sunday night in that era, there's maybe three people in the OR. Well, and but the, the people that were working at the time were pretty pretty rude. Well, I mean, there was a... mean-spirited people back then. I mean, look whatever it is what it is and those days are gone but there was you know there were some people that remain nameless for this podcast that we could talk about it off air that's something this to this day i'm still going how why did they choose comedy as an even potential profession well i think back then it was just like uh you know tommy was in the uh the thrones of his power uh, that's why I keep I got kicked out because of him. So well, let's get into that, uh, Tommy. Everyone knows Tommy, the I know talent coordinator with the. Let's just say some interesting views on certain elements of society. Why did you did you not get along with him? Uh, I did, but I am not a fan of his. Uh, I have not been for. Uh, he attacked me at probably one of my lowest points in my life, and um, and so I kind of never really forgave him for it i've moved on but i never forgave him for it you know i um he kicked me out of the comedy store um for not having been there for two months because uh i wasn't there for two months because my kid was in the nicu and i wasn't doing comedy at all i was more concerned about my child staying alive and i came back to the comedy store one night it was a sunday or monday whatever you know like that's for us that's our escape. Like these are things that we like, we want to get away from like whatever is bugging us in the world. We go to our, a place that we know and like hang out and get on stage and like do that thing. And uh, I got there, wasn't on the list. No big deal. Uh, Ryan, uh, whose last name is O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill was there and he goes, you're not on the list, but you know what? We got some spots. I'll put you up, uh, uh, up next. I was sitting side stage. Tommy comes storming over. Says to Ryan O'Neill, who's going up next? I said, he said, Irwin. He and he looks looks at me and looks at Ryan. He goes, he's not going up. He doesn't go up here anymore. Don't ever put him up here again. And he's and he was screaming so loud on the side of the stage that whoever was on stage stopped doing their comedy. The whole audience turned over and was like looking at us. And I was like in a bad emotional state at that time because it was just you know what I was going through at home with the kid. And he just walked away and I tried talking to him and he refused to talk to me about it that night. And Ryan O'Neill pulled him aside and, and just laid into him in the back hallway of like, you can't do that to people, man. It's like, it's one thing if you don't want someone to you know, go up, but you can't humiliate people publicly like that. And I tried calling him a couple of times afterwards and he refused to talk to me. So I, to this day, I still have no idea what happened, how that happened. Cause I was, you know, I got along with everybody at the comedy store back then. But yeah, it hit me really hard. Like I, I didn't go back to that club for six, seven years after that happened because he was there and I wasn't allowed there. Yeah, I mean, I did the, pretty much the same thing. It was like, I don't think I either I'm not ready for this place or it's not my type of, maybe my humor doesn't fit in here or whatever. Uh, but then I think, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, I said, oh, let me dip my toe in again. And, you know, around 2009, I met Jeff Richards and he got me into opening up with Rob Schneider. And it's just like through that, Adam Egot, the talent coordinator now at the store, saw me at like 2011, the Tempe Improv. And so it's weird how, like, you know, so many different paths can get you 
yeah back in or whatever yeah, yeah so. and, and like i said i mean i um you know i'm really disappointed that dude handled it the way he did and like never really allowed me to you know talk to him about it and look people have all their stories about tommy mine's a personal one it's i've and i've always said to people like look here's the deal for anybody that thinks that my story is about like bitterness or not about not being allowed back in the comedy store my attitude was this every person that runs a club or is in charge of comedy they they do have the right to pull you aside and be like look i don't get you i don't think you're right for this place you're probably never going to get past here or we're done with you we moved on like that's fine it's it's how you do it you know what i mean it's like do you treat the person with respect and be a human and, and talk to them face to face or do you publicly shame them or treat them like shit or whatever? It's just, it really was about how he went about doing what he did. And it was just, it happened to be at a very fragile moment in my life because obviously I was, you know, I was coming out of a bad place, you know, it, with my kid. So when I look back on the big picture of it, granted, he didn't know any of that stuff, but he never wanted to find out. He never wanted to get to the bottom of it. Right. He just exploded publicly shamed me and then moved on and and that's the part really for me i'm like why won't you talk to me man well you know whatever i moved on i've had a good life i've i've done other things and i'm not gonna live my life going woulda coulda shoulda because of tommy tommy is is not relevant in my life i'm only talking about it because obviously i know that there's a <laughs> well, there's a history on this show with him you know you were the first person i think to talk to him after uh it was uh, he finally got the it was literally like, because I had heard through the grapevine that uh, he had reached out to Mark Marin, and I get it. You want to go on that podcast before mine? I mean, I'm a realist, <laughs> and I'm sure Marin. I don't know what he said, but I'm sure knowing him, I'm sure he's like, "Fuck you, man! You treated me like shit. I don't need you." I didn't have that attitude. It's <laughs> like, oh, you want to talk? Come on down and. uh I mean, I, I will put that first podcast up against any comedy podcast of all time and n nothing to do with me. Yeah. I, I literally spoke maybe 10 minutes and it was just a fascinating look into a egomaniac or whatever, a sociopath, you might say. Yeah. Uh, his way of thinking or lack of. Yeah. So... Uh, but it's too bad because he held back a lot of people like, I won't say me, but like you and like Patrick Keen and uh, even Ian like isn't, uh, yeah. Yeah, Ian doesn't probably care about being passed at the store, but like, you know, it's crazy to me that he's not. Well, you have to remember it was a different, I mean, back then too, there was a different ideology that I think um, kind of became a cancer because it, it, I think it, it got out of control as to what the ideology was. But when, you know, when you got guys like Dave Attell or Chris Rock or or Jim Gaffigan stopping by the store and they are not willing to put them up because they weren't past paid regulars or door guys in the past, there's something there's something fundamentally wrong about that. You're cheating the audience that's there of something special that night because it didn't fit your ideology of the moment. And I felt like that was that it was that part of it that was kind of splintering and like hurting that club at the time. To which you know the, this new generation has come in and kind of cleaned that that up. Oh, absolutely! And understands the importance of what you get at the moment. Like capitalize on the moment. If Chris Rock is in the room, Chris Rock goes on stage. Chris Rock shouldn't be wandering around. And I'm, and I'm speaking from personal experience. 
he shouldn't be wandering around in the back of the room wondering if anybody's going to ask him to go up. And then when nobody does, he leaves. So you've got this audience <laughs> watching somebody on stage they're not really enjoying, not un- realizing that right behind them is one of the greatest comedians of all time, wondering if someone's going to ask him to do a couple minutes. Because Chris Rock, even if he was going to come, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have done you know, uh, six hours. He would have been up there and respected the time. He does. He probably would have done, you know, whatever, 15 minutes. It worked out some new stuff. People would have been stoked. Would have went, I never believe what I saw at the comedy store last night, but they just didn't get that at that time. And again, neither here nor there for me, man. I'm not, I'm not here to slam it. I had some great years at the comedy store. It's just that it just didn't end the way I thought it was going to end. You know? Did you do a show there? Am I crazy? Or did you run a show there on Friday nights in the belly room? I did. I used to do a Tuesday night. I did Friday nights there in the belly room. Yeah. And was the, uh, hope to, you know, get in there through that way and like almost by, not bypass Tommy. Cause you couldn't at that time, but like, uh, well, here's what happened. So, I started at the comedy store in La Jolla. I moved from Wisconsin, went to La Jolla. Showcase down there got passed. Who do you showcase for in La Jolla in, or at that Mitzi. time? Oh, she so was you- still at that time. This is, this got to be around 2000, I guess 2001, 2002. I can't remember but when, when exactly it was, but there was a group of us that got passed. I, w- I got passed uh, way back with Ren Azizi and Ari Shafir and guys like that. Um, I believe they may have also gotten passed on there. I can't remember. My, my That's an interesting group. Yeah. So, um, but then, so then I got up there and, you know, you call and you get your spots, whatever, you know, I got, I got my spots here and there. Um, Duncan Trussell was still running the uh, talent uh, at that time. So it was just, it was just a different setup, you know, and, and even still at that point, even up in LA, Mitzi would still come out and see guys from time to time, you know, but then something happened where, they uh some guys got in trouble at with at, within the group that uh, uh, during that time that I was I was picked up and so a bunch of people were shelved myself included um but I was still there I was just kind of shelved like put right. aside and so then so what I decided to do just to get more stage time was like I don't care I was like I don't care I ran open mics I ran other rooms outside of the circuit I loved the comedy store so I just started running my own shows just because I could also put people up that I wanted to put up. I used to have Ian Bag on it all the time as a host. I think, you know, you've done it. Um, Jim Gaffigan used to come and do it all the time. Judah Friedlander would come up there. Dave Attell, I'd get him up there. Because, you know, a lot of these guys, they weren't getting the stage time downstairs. They could only get it upstairs. That's crazy to me. And I, I remember Mark Marin. I, I, I said this to him a couple, you know, about two years ago. I felt really bad for him because at that time he was only getting six minute spots up in the belly room. And you get these guys that you're looking at going, this guy should be doing 20 minutes, 15 minutes, a half an hour on my show. And they're coming up and they're like, Hey, uh, you know, the comedy store put me on the show and you're like, all right, well, um, Mr. Marin, you get uh, six minutes <laughs> and it's just, it feels wrong. You know, it's like, it's just weird. It's just, it's just so good to see that if you, if you, if you stick to it, if that's your thing, it, it kind of comes back around. Like you, you can, it, I, you don't know how long, but if you stick to it, if it's, if you belong, you'll eventually find your way back. That's well, what I do believe. Oh, I, I agree with that. You know, I mean, I, I look now today, at, like the store for me, is just, it's my home. Like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I like the improv. I, I don't think I'm a laugh factory guy. I just, I don't like the atmosphere there. It's not the same. Look, you, you, you stuck it out. <laughs> and I remember we've had conversations about this because I just, 
I couldn't stick it out. And I was always praising you for sticking it out. I mean, you put in time, a lot of time around there, just plugging away at it. And I was always just like, man, good for you, dude. I, I can't do it. I, I can't. And you, you stuck it out and eventually paid off, you know? So there is, I mean, whatever you did, you, it, it worked a little bit of luck. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just, you know, uh, meeting Jeff Richards that one night. And, you know, I got to say, and I see him in uh, uh chat right now, the great Don Barris, uh, you know, we would do the late night band and uh, those were spots for me. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, Tommy would watch some nights and I, uh, this is my opportunity to be uh, funny or whatever in front of him. And, and Don was, would always set me up with some lines every night. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it, it certainly was discouraging at times just going, God, this guy's never going to pass me. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, that's, I, you know, that, that is part, <laughs> that part of it, I was totally fine with. There was something unique about that whole concept. You know, a lot of, it's, it's a love or hate concept, right? That like keep plugging away to see. And a lot of great people never, ever got past or will ever get past to the comedy store. So it's not a perfect science. Oh but no. That, but that's kind of, that is kind of one of the unique things at that place. Unlike the other two clubs, um, which are fine in their own ways, um, that is kind of one of the unique things that I always liked about the comedy store. And I loved being at the comedy store. I was really bummed that I didn't feel welcome there for, for so long because I, I felt the same way you did in the early part of it. I actually liked being around that. I liked being around all of its quirkiness. You talk about Don Barris and all the stuff that, you know, that he was doing at, that, at, at the club at that time. Just I, I didn't know everybody, but that didn't mean that I wasn't wandering around like watching it and kind of soaking it in and, you know, and, and appreciating, even though those we call them the dark days, there was still some cool stuff going on back then. Oh, I mean, it, some of the funnest times. I mean, we would do the band some nights till the sun came up. I mean, it would, you know, and they would have like, uh, I don't know if I would call them gambling parties, but they would have, uh, let's just say some interesting card games going on <laughs> in the, uh, the main room. And it was just like, it literally was like the bar in star Wars. Like you, every unsavory character was up there. And so it made it tolerable to not be passed up there, but to still be a part of something that was, uh, special <laughs> in this weird way. And then, I think once the newer uh, management team started uh, looking into some accounting methods by certain individuals that weren't, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, up to snuff that, you know, and then, you know, Adam came in and embraced the industry. Like, yeah, I think toward the tail end of me and Schneider opening me opening up for him. Uh, he's like, yeah, I went up there and what's the deal with that guy, Tommy? I'm like, oh, you know, he's kind of a weird dude, Rob. You know, he's, he's, I don't know, he's just a weird dude. I'm like, why? Because I could tell he had had an awkward interaction with him. He's like, yeah, he told me to come up there on Sunday and Mondays. Now, at that time, Sundays and Mondays, as you know, <laughs> was the open mic potluck, uh, <laughs> you know. So it's like, you know, Rob Schneider's a huge fucking star. <laughs> what, you know, and to me, what's in, and he doesn't get the credit is he's been a star in TV, movies, and stand up. Like, and in some of those areas, twice. Like, you know, he quit stand up for a bit and then he came back and now he sells out everywhere. And you're going to tell that guy 
to come on Sunday and Mondays and I'll maybe get you on. <laughs> so what the fuck? That's what I was telling you. That's where the ideology just got out of control. Like that's where it's just like, you got to bend the rules for the, all the right reasons sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, you know, like I got bumped recently by Chappelle and there was another comic who got bumped and they were pissed. And it's like, yeah, I'm a stage whore. I love going up, but it's like, you're going to get bumped. It's a pretty good guy to get bummed for, you know. You got to understand the brand uh, of comedy, yeah. you know, and and the even thing I is, do. Is Chappelle, but what I'm saying, they, but I, I understand both sides of it. But the brand of comedy needs those Chappelle moments. That's what drives the traffic into there, so that you get more quality stage time. Sure, you got bumped this time, but you're going to get more quality stage time in the long run because Chappelle bumped you one night. That's that's the way you got to look at it. It's hard. I agree. Most comics, we're all stage horrors, and we don't like to get bumped. But there isn't there there is there is a good method to that madness. But I think, and I can't speak for Adam, so yeah, I don't know what goes through his mind. But like, I think he sees this. Okay, I'm going to get Rob Schneider up here. He's friends with David Spade. Spade will start coming here. He's friends with Adam Sandler. Sandler. Can, Adam's friends with Judd Apatow. Like, it's so, like, it's a domino. It's like if one guy comes back, it's like when Rogan came back, uh, Joey Diaz then started coming back. And then it was just like, so then you had all of, of that a group of comics coming back who are all killers. And, you know, it's like, you know, so that's why. Because people don't, I think, understand why the store went from nothing to the hottest club in the country. Mm -hmm. It's just one simple switching gears yeah i i've seen nothing wrong with it i know for some people they they feel like a part of that development uh, 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 a process is gone it's harder to get stage time for the the unknowns but look man again kind of going back to your your journey got to plug away you got to plug away you got to suck it up and you if you're if you're lucky you'll still you'll still find a way in at the end of the day and you know, it's not for everybody. Oh, no. Just like, you know, the, the Laugh Factory is not necessarily for me. I would still perform there. Yeah. But. Because uh, you're a stage whore. Oh, I, you know, <laughs> someone called me, my friend Jason Helfcott. You would like him. He's a good dude. He's like us, just a grinder. Uh, he said, hey, I'm doing this thing, 50 comics doing their first minute of material from 2018. I kind of like the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh and I'm doing it at Sal's Comedy Hall. And uh, to you non-comics out there, Sal's Comedy Hall is like the, uh, what's that abandoned stadium in Detroit? The, not the Metro Dome. Is it the, the Pontiac Silver Dome? That's the Pontiac Silver Dome <laughs> of comedy clubs. It's just a vast wasteland. And I performed there, bombed for seven minutes, and it erased every good feeling that 2017 <laughs> and why did i go up because i wanted to go up <laughs> right so but you've taken a non since you're not well you i don't want to say you weren't a store guy but you have carved out a long career in comedy not at the store like how do you because there's bar shows and there's yeah. club show i mean did you just say okay if i'm not going to get the love at the store right now I mean, how did you keep going? Well, I, I changed my um, my path of what I wanted to do. I mean, I went to film school, even though I got kicked out. Why? Because um, I well, it was an avant-garde film school, and I was making narratives, and that's a very easy way to get kicked out, um, you know. But 
I appreciate the two years that I went there because I think that you learn a lot about filmmaking through avant-garde filmmaking. A lot of people just think it's weird stuff, like weirdo stuff, you know, but um, believe it or not, you know, stylistically and how to tell stories, that's, you learn most of that actually from avant-garde filmmaking. And then you put it into narratives instead of just making generic lifetime stories every day. That's how you tell us, you know, a real uh, a filmmaker would, would pull from that stuff. That's some of the greatest movies we've ever seen is because they've pulled from that kind of stuff. But anyway, so I got kicked out of that, came out here, uh, love up. always wanted to do standup. That's how I started. That's how I, I, I got my feet wet. And that's how I learned how to, that's, you know, you kind of have to find a social circle when you come out here. And it's like, I'm not an actor. So, right. and I wasn't going to go to AFI film school. So I was like, well, I love standup. So that's going to be my social circle. That's how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to try to survive out here as standup. So that's what I did. And it, and it started because my sister lived in San Diego. I, I came out or be in LA, but I, I landed in San Diego, found out about the La Jolla comedy store, got in right away. Um, what spent, year is this about? This is 2000. Okay. There is no about it's exactly 2000 May of 2000. So I got in there real quick. We showed up and they, they, they did a showcase and I got in immediately and I was like, you know what? Screw it. They were like, you can come back every week. And if, and Hey, you know, we love to have these guys. That's when I learned about the concept. You can also be a door guy if you want. And I was like, well, yeah, I, you know, why not make a few bucks, hang right. out to extra, you know, did that whole thing. That's how I got in. And that's where I thought, you know, my journey was going to be, it was going to go through the comedy store I was, I was buying into the, you know, the brand, you know, got up here, did all the stuff we talked about earlier when it's it, uh, when I started, when I got married and started having kids, um, I just kind of took a leap of faith of like, look. I get it. You know, I live in Los Angeles. I live, I, I'm performing on the sunset strip. People are, are, you know, driving down the street with their shirts off and cowboy hats and, and leather pants. That was and, me. Yeah. <laughs> They're getting exactly. That's how I met you. Uh, you were hanging out at the top of a, of a, uh, of a, a limo at a gay bar at, at the a, probe. And they probably aren't coming to a comedy store or a comedy show to listen to a dude talk about his wife and kids, but I sucked it up. And and I, I, what I did was if it wasn't going to be the comedy store, it was going to be wherever I could get stage time. I was going to learn how to tell stories about being married and having kids to people who, who probably at that time were, were never planning on it being married right. and having kids. So I, I, instead of going on the road and playing to the easiest audience, I actually tried to find places where it was the hardest audiences because that was my personal challenge. So that's so wherever that was, but I, you know, I was able to get up at, uh, you know, all the, um, I mean, dude, there's so many places you can get up around here, you know. Um, I find there's fewer now. Back, like in 2000, or in the early 2000s, I find, found that you could go two, three spots a night with a, not like New York where you could walk to them, but like like on Vermont, you know, there's a couple of coffee shops and then the cafes in the valley. Now I find that there's not as many rooms, but there's, I think, many more comics. Yeah, I I can't speak for that because I've 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 tailored my interests in where I do comedy now because I've moved during that whole journey that we're talking about here. I was in production because I wanted to learn production because I wanted to be a producer, I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a director. So comedy wasn't the only thing anymore. Obviously, I wanted to kind of go back that that route. So that's what I was doing. And you know, after the Ian Bag show was done, I started doing stuff. I started making television show pilots with Louis Anderson. You know, that's. I left and did that, wrote some other stuff, you know, um, and tried to get more into production if I wasn't going to be able to fulfill um, that hole in my heart for comedy sure. when it wasn't there. And then YouTube came around. Then I started making YouTube videos. And then I got back with Ian Bag and 
started doing podcasts again. Like he was or like we started doing the a bag show, but as a podcast. Right. Like so I was doing all these other things. Um and then, you know, social media really helped me with comedy personally, with comedy writing and writing in general. Social media is probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because I can write on a daily basis, a public journal right. about sure. my life and work out my, my material in, in the written in the written form. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's that's kind of how I survived it. You know, I, I didn't I was no longer the grinder that you're talking about. Like I was no longer hanging out at the clubs because I couldn't. Right. I had young kids at home. Like my kids don't when they didn't care that if I had a, a I couldn't imagine myself doing a one fifteen spot in the morning, knowing that my kids were going to get up at 5 a.m. My day was going to be blown the next day. So I had to make a decision, you know, on how I was going to what I was going to do next. And that's why I started paying closer uh, attention to production and filmmaking and, yeah, I don't and television. You, I don't think your wife would have dug that. What that? What that? Yeah, honey, I'm gonna go 115 spot at the store. I'm gonna be back at three. You get up and get the kids going. You know, I will say though, because you've met my wife, she's she awesome. Was around, I think in the end, even though I made that choice that way, if I had said what you just said, my wife would have been like, "Okay." My wife's always been like pretty supportive of everything I've ever done. She's also ridiculously smart and a very successful lawyer, so she's got her, she's dialed in. You know, she's the rock in the in the house, and and I genuinely, I'm not, I'm not in trouble. Like, so I'm not trying to use this podcast as a way to, you know, make sure that my wife still loves me because she's never. She's well, you're in big trouble if she you doesn't are. Doesn't listen to anything that I do anyway, so this this isn't going to help me in any way, shape, or form. But no, that's um, I, I'm really, really lucky there, and I know over the years, comics have always made fun of me about my married life, you know, because most comics aren't, you know. Well, don't get into roast battle. <laughs> Well, I think most comics are probably better that you have a, like someone you're actually in love with and care about, and you know you're not cheating on her, and you're not, you know, like you're, you're happy. I honestly, dude, I found balance. There are days where I wish I did more stand up, but as long as I'm doing something creative and I still have my family, I'm totally fine with that. Right now, if you were to ask me that back in 2002. When we're talking about when I was a douchebag, I wouldn't be saying all those things. I would have been like, no, let's just party and skate. Let's yeah. get some pussy. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's different points in everybody's lives. You know, it's like, I'd rather just, I would rather do 16 comedy shows that week and, you know, get drunk. That was what it was like when you get into the scene initially when you're young and stupid. You know? Yeah. I mean, you walk outside of Moggy's and have Jay London trying to sell you VHS tapes. <laughs> Ah, Jay London, thank you. I do miss some of those times, uh, even though I was horribly unsuccessful back then. I do miss, there was a camaraderie back then. Like yeah, but we, dude, almost nobody was successful back then. So when you say that you were not successful, I, I, I wonder if you were, do you really genuinely look back on, on your comedy time? Can, can, like you just kind of said two things at the same time. You're like, I was unsuccessful, but I really liked it. Like if you were genuinely unsuccessful, you probably would have been so miserable. You would have moved back. I mean, think about how many, I, I, by the way, I save all my lists from all the open mics that I used to run. You posted one once. I did. I think you were on it. I was, I was 18. I had a hot spot that night. <laughs> it's funny how 18th is the hottest spot. You got to run the numbers, man. You got to know where you fall in the lineup. But I mean, I think it almost—I think it hurt me in a way because I, people would keep coming up to me early on. I wasn't the best comic; I'll fully admit to that. 
uh, they would be like, dude, you're like the Dane Cook of open mics because there was no room that I couldn't do well in just because I enjoyed, you know, I would do inside jokes to comics, you know, boon shakalaka zingers and, <laughs> and it, it hurt me because I didn't want to leave that circuit because I'm like, I'm scared to go to the improv or to do a set in front of actual real people. Yeah, I never understood that about you because you, you have... Uh, uh, you always struck me as a guy that was very likable. The, the people, people weren't like, "Ugh, here comes Earl." Like you, you weren't that guy. You were the exact opposite. People were like, "Hey, Earl's here!" Like you had that cheers part of you in there that everyone was like, "Yeah, Earl's here. This is cool." And so I did notice that with you that like you were so much more comfortable in your own skin and in the around open mics. And that you were became very uncomfortable and uneasy in the early years. Oh no! Still at, in the book shows and in the bigger clubs, and I didn't understand that because my attitude was like, dude, whatever you were doing at the open mics, I always felt like it's going to translate in a regular room too. And my attitude was like, if the audience doesn't get what you were doing, that's their fault. I agree with I was that. Digging what you were doing, and you know, I had seen enough stand up to know who knew what they were doing and who was wasting their time and eventually was going to leave. And you were not one of the ones wasting time. So it's like, I don't know why you have to be so nervous, you know, about these things or, you know, so hard on yourself. Cause it was like, it's going to work it out. It's going to work itself out one way or another well, in, I, in the positive way. Well, I was very, uh, you know, I, I'd never really performed on a consistent basis in front of people who were like there for comedy. Right. Like in the, <laughs> not waiting to get up. You mean? Yeah. Like right. either, non i'd never really been in front of a non-comic crowd who was like laughing and i mean when i first started getting like regular time at clubs i would tell the audience to be quiet like you're interrupting my flow with laughter <laughs> i mean did you ever have that where you went from like amagis and like weekly not spots there but like you know 20 30 minutes of weekly time when you're hosting and and then you go to the improv and you're like oh fuck i i can't make fun of uh James Painter right now. I, I could have a joke. You know, I don't remember. I th I think I adapted pretty well, you know, uh, from, from room to room. I, th I think I was okay with being able to read the room. I, for me, it probably was the exact opposite, which was that I looked at open bikes um, in the form of survival. Like I was just trying to find, I was, I was looking at what do I need to do to survive to the next open mic. I just want to make sure that I'm welcome to the next one. Like that's the, that was my attitude. I don't think I was never an open mic King. That's why I ran them. Cause I was never going to be one of the Kings. Like guys could come through and they rose up through those open mics. And basically open micers were the ones that were basically almost kind of granting them the license to move on. Right. You know, because they, they conquered that world. <laughs> I never felt like that was going to be my way. So I had to run the rooms, you know, and make sure that I, I stayed in while I was trying to sneak my way into these other clubs. It was the exact opposite for me. I was totally comfortable on stage that I, in a non-open mic scenario. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, everyone has a different path and, you know. And mine so far has not really panned out. Well, I don't know about that. From stand-up. Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, we're probably in the worst category to be in, older white guys. No, oh yeah, like, I don't. And look, I agree. Normal looking white guys. Yeah, I and and I. Th that's the. Th I think maybe that's probably the worst thing for me, which is funny, is all these changes that are happening in the world and specifically entertainment and comedy. 
I actually agree with them and I shouldn't because that, that goes against me. <laughs> like what you just, like I see pictures of me sometimes and I'm like, oh my God, I, could I be any more generic? Like there is, could I be any more uninteresting? So, and then I, so I start taking the side of, you know, why they would be going for people of, uh, of, of, of other races, ethnicities, other points of view, other looks. Like I get it. Like, I, and it was just silly that I'm actually, I can take off, you know, this hat and put on an executive hat and go, yeah. I mean, unless you're bringing the thunder and some other, which is why I just eventually just moved towards just talking about having kids. And that is becoming a very crowded market now because now everyone's getting to a certain point where they start having kids. Like Gaffigan. And famous people start having kids. And then that changes the game because they're already so good at what they do. Like writing jokes about having kids. It's like, right. of course they're going to crush at it. Right. Like that's, we're waiting for the bag man to have a kid. <laughs> I keep asking him. He keeps saying maybe. I mean, that kid's going to come out of the <laughs> the vagina doing crowd work. <laughs> he's Ian's so funny. I mean, he's like one of the greatest comics ever. Oh, I, I really like, do believe that. I I um I know a lot of people don't still know who he is because he's never been a television star. But I've never uh, probably David Tell. Those are guys that I that just destroy rooms, just destroy them. I, I'm Ian Bag and David Tell to me like are two guys that like on any given night I don't care who's in the room, they're winning those rooms over guaranteed. Oh yeah, I mean like he's that's the intimidating thing, and I guess it really depends on what your version of famous is, you know, or to, the fact that he's not like on a level of I don't know. Jim Jeffries or whoever. It's like, it's, it's like, wow, how am I going to get there if he ain't there? Yeah. I know it's different paths for everyone, like, but it's still pretty like, this guy should be famous. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's also dumb luck. I just think it's right place, right time. I think certain things catch fire at the right time. You know what I mean? I think it's just click in place. And sometimes you just miss the click, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, somebody else gets it instead of you, you know? I mean, that's like, you, you're going back and talking about the Ian Bag show. Which is which was for for me, uh, one of the best things I ever creatively worked on because we were really close. That was that was really close to becoming a late night, a legitimate late night talk show. When we were firing on all cylinders, it was there was nothing. There would have been nothing like it on television. Oh, I can assure you of that with the great Johnny Doom. <laughs> but even but the thing about it is we were so we were so on fire back then that e even he would have been successful because he would have there would have been a category for him he would have been like guillermo is to kimmel yes, yes he there's a category it was a category for every single person on that show and, and we just missed it was just something clicked somebody else got it we didn't end a story i mean it was to me it was like tosh before tosh just that irreverent like anything goes somewhat crossing the line humor yeah like I remember the one sketch we did at the Friars Club about the Arab, it was something Arab based where I think Jeff Keith came out in a, like a hijab and was like talking in this Arab accent. It's like, this is what the hell is this? We're going to get kicked off a of TV. We're not even on it. <laughs> that may have been, that may have been after me. I'm trying to remember when I, no, I think you were still on board. Was I still and, there? I think the one 
sketch we did was where I was the sideline reporter in Iraq, you know, and you had the fake bullet sounds and like <laughs> so stupid. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you see certain people get on and like certain people not get on. And, you know, I certainly see on a nightly basis people I think that should make it or be be famous once again, whatever that is, and they're not. And then you see, you come home and you turn on the TV and you see this person's on TV. Yeah. So it's... Look, there's a million reasons why one person's path goes this way and one person's path goes the other way. That's why I just kind of feel like at some point, you know, you you got it. You have to find a way to enjoy the journey. And I look, re- regardless of where my career ends up, ultimately... Dude, I've I'm I'm I've looked back on the what we biggest eighteen years that I've been out here. I'm I'm I loved it, loved everything I've done. So the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now speaking of where your career is going, don't you have a project you're working on right now? Not not working on specifically. At, well, yes, if you mean working on it by promoting, yes, I am, and that's a movie. And, and the, so, it, which is perfect because this kind of sums it all up perfectly. I, uh, it's out now. It's a movie called fixed and it's about a guy who, uh, is married, has kids, uh, has the threat of a vasectomy, a minivan and, uh, puts him into an early midlife crisis, like a freak out. Like what happened in my life? I'm not like, I'm not the guy I thought I was anymore. Who is? So (laughs) trust me, you have, you may, I don't think you've, you haven't gotten as far as the perspective. I mean, it literally is my perspective. I worked on it with another, uh, I wrote it with, uh, the director Alonzo Mayo, um, who contacted me off of Facebook. And I had briefly met him in a preschool where I had my, where I had my anxiety attack about my vasectomy and about my minivan that I hated that I was, that I was driving around in. And, um, we had the conversation I told him my life story and he was like, we could probably turn this into something. So it's not, it's not autobiography. It's just basically taking pieces of my life and then building characters around it. But it is, it is literally about that. It's, it's, it's a bunch, it's, it's a guy who goes through a bunch of shit trying to figure out like, what is the point of all this, you know, being a man. And of course, because we're men, we're stupid and we gave him two other stupid friends to figure it out. And it's a little bit of hangover meets, Without giving away too much, right. the hangover kind of meets. Um, um, I don't want to say daddy daycare, not daddy daycare. Uh, what's the other one? Daddy's three men and a baby. Uh, three men and a baby, maybe a little bit of that. Yeah, because they're all stay at home dads. Because I, I, uh, I am and always have been a stay at home dad, which is kind of you know a lot of comics I know do that. You know that have kids. Not the ones I know. <laughs> now, where can people? Netflix or like- uh, no? It's on iTunes, Amazon, all VOD. Uh, Netflix, you know, these days, Netflix, uh, for you, uh, youngins out there, there was this thing called blockbuster. Uh, that was the last place other than HBO. And then eventually a commercialized version of it on ABC. That's how movies had their trajectories from the theater to blockbuster to whatever to HBO. Uh, all that doesn't exist anymore. So Netflix is kind of a last landing place unless it's a Netflix original. Right. Um, so it does the, it now everything goes through iTunes and Amazon first. VOD, you know, Comcast, all the stuff, whatever you get on your TV, you know, all that stuff. It's too much. Hulu, Amazon Prime, Am- I mean. They're everywhere. It's, it's, it's hard to read. I, you know, the thing, the thing that, uh, that I've learned, though, is that go with what you know. So I wrote a script, uh, a, a comedy script about parenting, about 
minivans about life falling apart and not figuring out how to deal with it. I wrote with what I, I know, which also means I found, I know my voice, so I know who's going to watch it. I know what my primary audience is going to be. Who know? is your primary audience? Primary audience is people who are married with kids. Because there's everything in there. It's grounded in reality. It's an independent film. I produced it as well, along with some other people. So it's it's not it's not a studio film, though. It was we did it. Look, it's great. It really is was done very well. We had a very talented um, crew and director and and cinematographer. So it it doesn't look. It's not a piece of shit. I mean, I, and I genuinely mean that. Like, even if it wasn't my movie. I wasn't going to let it look like a piece of shit. It's actually very well done on top of it. So it kind of has a feel of a studio film, but it was straight up independent. It's grounded in reality. It's not slapsticky. That's what I was saying. It's not like daddy daycare. Like no one's going to, no one's going to get hit in the face with, with pee when they try to change a diaper or three minute baby or whatever. It's not, it's not like that kind of stuff. It's grounded in reality. All the comedy is. Is it slightly, you strike me as uh, it could possibly be slightly not dark, but uh, it is darker okay there are some darker elements because because it's grounded in reality there is come and you know this a lot of comedy comes from dark places sometimes you got that right yeah and 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 and, and what i tried to accomplish one of the things i try to accomplish in this film which is a great challenge when it comes to comedy is trying to find a way to appreciate and laugh and enjoy the ugliness of life because if i've learned anything whether married or divorced or single, a lot of life is ugly. You have to find a way to laugh, to laugh at it. Otherwise, you know, you can, you can, you can get stuck in that dark place. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a shitty place to, to be. So you might as well look at it and kind of laugh about it. And that's kind of what I've, that's kind of what, you know, growing up, I guess, getting married, you know, put my big boy pants on, getting married and having kids. It actually has taught me that. And, and it, it's helped me creatively because of that, because it allows me to look at it, even in its shittiest moments, it allows me to look at it in a different way. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of the mash concept, right? Like people are always like, I can't believe, you know, they, they did, you know, they, they, they made a comedy out of a war, you know? I mean, really, if you think about it, they found a way to take the dark, ugly stuff and turn it into a comedy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you could make any subject into it. You could make 9-11, as crazy as that was. I'm not saying you could make it a series, but like, I'm surprised no one did a spoof movie on that. Eventually it will come. I think those wounds are still a little bit too, the 9-11 thing's a little bit, I think for a lot of people, is still a little bit too fresh. I mean, maybe, it, I mean, it's weird to think that it was 17 years ago almost. But. I mean, maybe LA to Vegas will have a uh, episode. That, I got to be honest with you. I did not want to like that show because I find that the comedies on network tv are horrific dylan mcdermott's really funny i have not seen it it is funny to me it is it's 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 not slapstick humor but he's kind of playing a dry you know horny you know pilot and you know of course they have the gay flight attendant they have the kind of the hoary flight attendant then they have my uh the mob guy from prison break he's like the <laughs> the uh degenerate gambler i'm surprised he would do it like he's like a serious actor and he's it's weird to see a serious actor be funny right um but so i did i didn't want to like it but maybe they'll do a 9-11 episode <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll put dip the toe in the water to see if there's more that more to, to mind there. i think when we hit 20 years that's the magic number 20 maybe 25 somebody will find a way to do it and be able to take it <laughs> be a tough be a, sell 
I don't disagree with you, but like at some point, I think that PC culture is going to snap and then people are, it's going to, it's going to come back around a little bit. We're like that, 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 um, that, 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 that biting satire is going to come back and right. it's going to work, you know, it has to. Well, I mean, if you sterilize everything, dude, it's just, it, it, it's just gonna, it's, you know, it's going to taste like bazooka gum after one bite, you know, it's, I don't know. nothing there. Well, you know, I, I, cause like when 9-11 happened and I heard, and I'm not testing out a bit, I, I really did do this when I heard that they had trained on Microsoft flight simulator, which was a computer game, you know, I went and bought it. I'm like, I want to see how good I can be. And I couldn't get the little, they had you start off in a Cessna. I couldn't get off the fucking runway. So, I mean, I'm just saying <laughs> they were good video gamers. Oh, is that, is that what your theory is? So it's, it will be about gaming in the end. Well, I mean, there's gotta be something there. You know, I could see like one of the Wayans brothers, you know, doing, uh, they get their mitts and everything. I mean, <laughs> that's where you're going with this. So you've got a, you've got a, you got a plan laid out of, of how it's going to come out. I mean, I pitched Jason Reitman a few ideas one uh, time at roast battle. How'd that work out for you? I mean, you know, I pitched him two ideas and, uh, I pitched him an idea about uh, having an all-black hockey team win the Stanley Cup. I like that. It's stupid. It's like Slapshot meets Roots meets Porky's meets Philadelphia. Um, Maybe that's where you lost him, but continue. Well, I pitched him the first scene, which is, to be honest with you, all I've written about the idea. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, he didn't say no right away. Of course, I haven't talked to him in about two years since the pitch. <laughs> so you think it's still simmering with him? Maybe he's still still trying to figure out how to make it work for you, Earl? <laughs> it's, it's possible. I mean, you know, that was one of the highlights of my life was when he brought his dad one night during roast battle. Oh, he did? And I was like, oh, you that's know. awesome. I mean, you know, I, I, I would say in our age range, Ivan Reitman mm -hmm. is like, basically did every successful comedy we saw as kids uh yeah you know stripes meatballs uh the twins uh i mean it, it's like ivan ryman and ivan ryman looked at me you know i'd fired off a zinger and he's like who are you <laughs> like, i'm done i could probably quit now and it's, my life ain't gonna get any better he gave you a shutdown look is that what you're saying no i i, I could tell he liked me oh okay okay it's like when Russell Simmons, you know, was there one night. You know, he's got his own problems right now. But, uh, you know, I was throwing out some pretty, some Archie Bunker-esque bombers out there. And I was like, Jesus, that's Russell Simmons. I better go apologize to him. I'm like, hey, Mr. Simmons, I'm, I'm you know, it's just, I always would blame it on Moses. I'd be like, hey, you know, Moses, what? He, you know, he tells me to say that shit. You know, he's like, <laughs> and he grabbed me by the arm. He's like, young man. You were my favorite part of the show. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the N word, Mr. Simmons? No, <laughs> so I, but, but getting back to your movie, yeah. If, do you mind me asking, like, was it an expensive endeavor to, like, how did you get the financing, the, the budget, or did you do like Robert Townsend style Hollywood shuffle, just credit cards and favors? Uh, there were a lot of favors uh, because I spent most of my life in production. And I also, one of my gigs was running a building called the Herald Examiner downtown. Oh, I remember. Uh, was one of the most used and most film locations. It's doesn't, doesn't, it's no longer used um, in 
the history of filmmaking in Los Angeles. And I ran that for a long time. Or I think I worked on it in the end. I was production, I was like 800 productions, something like that. But so I got to know a lot of people and I hooked up a lot of people over the years. So when it, I don't, and I don't like to, I'm not that guy. I don't like to ask for favors. So um, when it came down to asking for favors for this movie, I did get hooked up pretty, pretty well in respects to everything from, you know, G and E to cameras to locations. Um, people came out of the woodwork to help with the crew. Um, so yeah, it, we were able to keep our expenses down just because of all those favors. Right. And we, be, and again, um, having worked in production, we knew. So basically to take one step back, the director contacts me off of Facebook and says, uh, I want to meet with you. We talk. He says, look, here's a deal. My wife and I, we have a production company. I already made a movie. He had already made a movie called the story of Luke. Those investors said, we'll give you some more money to make something else. Initially, he wanted to make shorts and he wanted to do them based off my stories I tell about my kids. And I said, I really wasn't interested in doing that. You know, first off, filming with kids all the time would be very, very difficult independently if you don't have 50 Wranglers around them. And plus, I'd rather do a book on that. And I, so when we went the other direction, he's like, well, that's more of a movie. So that's, we had to make the movie work for the budget so when you sit down and write you're like okay it has to be grounded in reality we have to create a movie that we can afford to make because we can't have like a car chase scene no. not that there would be in that movie but like well know. i mean nothing would be out of the picture if you had the money right right but that's also the danger i think sometimes like i don't i i i believe that the reason why 35 million dollar um comedies fail is because they had 35 million dollars <laughs> right right they're forgetting like i think they they're like because they you know when you get to a point where like because you can sometimes it's like writing a comedy set just because you think it's funny it doesn't necessarily mean that it belongs there it may not be right for the set just like certain jokes may not be right for a movie so when you basically don't have uh the finances it really focuses you and we were on a very tight schedule because independent films in los angeles have to be made during the summer because that's when the majority of um production is is not in session which means you have more access to uh, talent but you have more access to crew and to locations and more freedom in the city it's basically when things get more discounted during that time so we were on a very specific timeline we had to write we had that we had to lock the script by a certain amount of time and like we had all these deadlines that we met and that was a great thing about working with alonzo and his wife nina is they were really good at um you know meeting those deadlines and having nina read the script over and over again and give us the female take because i didn't want to it's hard to be a man tell me about it and write and write the female parts because you know it's you're doing it from only the only thing you know which is observation you know you're writing dialogue based on what you think a woman might say so being able to have that voice in there because we we kind of give the women the women are like the ones that have their acts together very similar to my wife. It's like, they're the ones that are the ones that are most intelligent. They've got family and, and, you know, and parenting figured out kind of thing, you know? So all those little things just go into it. And yeah, we, there was, there at times it felt like run and gun, but we also, I mean, you were talking earlier about, uh, I don't know how production is for you right now on, on, on the show that you're on, but we also 12 hour days, man, done. It's brutal. I don't, I don't understand this ideology of, of, of independent filmmaking, of doing 18 hour days, man. Nobody is doing anything fresh 
after 12 hours. Nobody. Everybody is burnt out and they just want to get out. So could you imagine going another three, four, five hours trying to get, to milk stuff out of people who are just like, they're done. They're checked out, man. Well, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, your days are probably pretty good, right? I mean, I would say like I had a shoot an episode last week. Uh, my part at, at 13 hours. Yeah. And I think they uh, went well into the night. But uh, speaking of going well into the night, my iPad is at 5%. <laughs> No, no, the podcast isn't over. You want to listen to the rest of Inappropriate Earl, you're going to have to listen on SoundCloud and iTunes. So before my iPad burns out, tell us where to find your movie again. Fixed. Uh, it's called Fixed. Uh, it's uh, on iTunes and on Amazon uh, and all VOD formats. All VOD formats. You can't miss it. But, you know, the easiest thing to do, almost everybody's either got an Amazon or an iTunes account. You can either buy it or rent it. Uh, I believe the rental is four ninety nine for HD, and I think it's twelve ninety nine if you want to buy it. But it definitely, trust me, um, you're not going to be disappointed when you uh, when you rent to buy it. So I hope you guys do. Thank you. Please uh, support a friend of mine out. I don't say that often. I'll give you a little tasty before the iPod burns out. Got MSNBC on in the background. It's been great. All sorts of controversy happening in the background. When we're talking about my ho- my ball hockey trophies. Uh, let's see if we can get a quick shot of Lois here. A lot of people uh, at Lois, say hello. Uh, you're on the internet. Lois is just chilling right there. Picked her up at Michael Vick's house. No, no. Great. Now I'm bombing on my own podcast. <laughs> Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud and iTunes. We're going to talk for a few more minutes. So if you want to uh, listen to the rest, you got to tune into iTunes and SoundCloud tomorrow. Well, what I love about non-big budgets, like to me, RoboCop, the first one. Mm-hmm is awesome because they made it for no money you could tell every scene shot at night because they couldn't afford to shoot in the daytime right 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 yeah and then it makes like a hundred million dollars i think it costs like three or four you good on time yeah no, no, no. I, I i got the annoying eye watch and it's hooked up to all my cameras in the house with all the notifications so it constantly i'm trying to prevent myself from being a douchebag that was a total douchebag move which is why i, I try to not do that not at all Anyway, this is continue. not 2002. Back, back to back to Robo, RoboCop. But then you you know what you said like they I think it made it cost 6 to make, it made like close to 200 million or something and that's when like movie tickets were still like $5. Yeah. And then you know the, the second one wasn't as good cuz they had the money to go, "Oh yeah, let's have this car crash too." And it just and the third one was like talk about an Abba Zabba bar. <laughs> I mean, I love Robert John Burke, the actor who played RoboCop in the third one because I think Peter Weller tapped out. But uh, yikes. That's, I will say, side note, that's one thing that I loved about all my years in production, specifically working at the Herald. It's like, I feel like almost everybody came through. You know, like that. And like Peter Weller was one of them that came through. You know? Did he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He Because, you know, we had... One of the things that I specialized in was I, I created a volume-based business. Like, I, I mean, I have a past in business, so I, I knew how to basically run it as a business. And since I, it was my place, like I was the guy that was doing all the deals and working with all the producers and location managers, I, I was big in the independent filmmaking circuit. So everybody knew that you could come to me and I was going to find a way to make your money work and make deals. And it's amazing to me... Um, you know, that's when I learned that, you know, all the people, the stars of our era, they, they, that's how they make their livings. A lot of them is oh, yeah. filmmaking. Well, yeah. Day playing. 
I mean, uh, look at Peter Weller was on uh, Sons of Anarchy. He has uh, not a small role, but like he played like the the dirty cop. <laughs> He's great in it. Uh, but you think, wow, this guy was, and it still is, I guess, a huge, I mean, I don't know. He used to be a pretty big movie star and now he's, yeah. you know, doing TV roles. Well, I mean, it's, it's compartmentalized, right? He was a big movie star for our generation, right? Right. Like that's pretty much how it works. Like my parents had were sometimes they're, they still tell a story about a guy. I have no idea who the hell they're talking about. My parents live miles deep in the woods of Wisconsin, Northern Wisconsin. And they always talk about like this one, you know, old retired movie star that used to come to the, the bar restaurant, you know, where my parents lived in the middle of nowhere. And I'm always like, cool. I have no idea who you're talking about, but like for them, they were like, no, you don't understand. That dude was huge during our time. He was like a huge star. Was it MM at Walsh? <laughs> my parents, my parents, my dad's 88. So you're going way Might back. Might be MM at Walsh. Um, no, but so yeah, there, we had a greatest American here. William Cat got to meet him. I was stoked. Actually, um, that I had made, I was big into Photoshop back then, and I had Photoshopped my face. I had a picture where I'd Photoshopped my face wearing his, uh, over his in that, and he happened to walk past and see that. <laughs> just It just kind of went, see Before I, he met me, before he met me. So he didn't put two and two together at the time. See, I would have hit him up with not the greatest American hero, Zinger. Yeah. I would have said, loved you and a big Wednesday. Ah, uh, Yes. There, yeah, I think that that people probably not even care. You're right. I think it's he's either greatest American hero to a lot of people, or he's Big Wednesday. Which was you talk about filmmaking? It that's one of the great stories is you know John Milius movie because he was a surfer and growing up in Malibu, and he graduated USC Film School with uh, Lucas and Spielberg, and they all said he they said he was the more talented one. And so they had a deal on their first big movie. They all got points. So Spielberg's was Close Encounters. <laughs> Lucas, Star Wars, and Big Wednesday. <laughs> so Millius made out like a bandit on that one. <laughs> Which I, Big Wednesday to me, I don't surf. I have zero interest in surfing. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, but it just... You know, it goes back to why certain comics don't make it or yeah. whatever. It's like you look at the actors and it's Jan Michael Vincent when he was like. <laughs> Again, another guy now, he's, he's for years, has been a punchline, right? You know, yeah. he had his problems. Yeah. And you tell people like of our generation, like he was like the next, he was like Tom Cruise before Tom Cruise. And they're like, that guy? <laughs> like he's all bloated and like Gary Busey, same thing. I mean, Gary Busey in that movie. And I think. The same year, the Buddy Holly story it was like, this guy's going to be the next, uh, I don't know about De Niro, but like something of that level. And he's doing Bulletproof with uh, not the one with Sandler and uh, <laughs> the Wayans. There was another Bulletproof. It was not. Bull I got a great Carrie Busey story. But let's hear it. Uh, by the way, a side note, wasn't William Katz supposed to be Luke Skywalker? There was a chance that he was going to be Luke Skywalker. If you go on YouTube... Uh, and I, I guess you would just put in Star Wars auditions. You have, uh, they had the Han Solo auditions up. It was William Cat. Is it Cot or Cat? I think it's Cat. Okay. They had Perry Lang, who, uh, you know, you, a character actor, but he was on the, in the mid 70s. He was like going to be the next good looking, swashbuckling type of guy. Uh, I think Christopher Walken. And um, audition for Han Solo, and 
another interesting Star Wars fact before we get to your Gary Busey story. The OG choice for Han Solo was a black actor by the name of Glenn Thurman, who, if you watch The Wire, he was the mayor. So... Well, you know what? Uh, I'll get to the Gary Busey thing in just a second, but but you know, it just goes to show you because we had the same thing with my film. Casting is everything. Oh, and I think character or the smaller parts. It may, uh, tell me if I'm wrong. You're always going to get a good lead to play the dad, to play the mom, but it's the neighbor or the guy at the liquor store when he goes in to buy the diapers. I think they make a movie to me. Ensemble casts, if you look at movies, it's the ensemble cast. It's the chemistry of a, a group of people. And I agree with you. It's like, yes, eventually, we, you know, we got lucky. We actually found our, we almost had to stop production because we almost couldn't find our lead actor. And when, when, we, when we stumbled upon him, it was perfect. Um, he, he fit the role perfectly. And then filling all those other parts. I mean, dude, I, I, I was a part of that casting process. It is <clears throat> cool. But it's tedious. I mean, you're seeing a lot of people. And I and I um I remember talking to the director, because ultimately, you know, it's his final call. And I'm like, man, I don't know how you you figured this out. Like it's a puzzle. Like you, you listed off all those names of those people. We're talking about a completely different movie. Right. In Star Wars. Oh, absolutely. Like it's crazy when you think about that, like how the how 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 integral, like casting is and getting it right like if you get it wrong man forget it you know what i mean if you and especially if you get you can't you you can't get too star crazy either because then the star can take it in a different direction it was never meant to be if you have too many of of that in a film as well that's why ensemble casts are so important that's why getting those filling those spots appropriately work better yeah i mean i'm i'm trying to think like it's wasn't the biggest movie, but like there's that football movie, North Dallas 40, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, it's funny to say this, but at the time you had Mac Davis, who was like a huge country Western star. Uh, he was like the star of the movie, uh, Nick Nolte. Uh, but to me, that movie is so great because of the smaller actors in it, like John Matuzak, who was basically playing himself as a crazy fucking <laughs> coked up, fueled up wild man and probably my favorite character actor of all time and by the way if you notice a little lull in the energy right now stormy daniels is <laughs> on my tv set so we both uh, <clears throat> it's hard to talk about john matuzak when you've got triple fucking d's <laughs> bursting through your tv set but probably my favorite character actor of all time and it's criminal that more people don't know who this guy is played the coach in North Dallas 40, G.D. Spradlin, who uh, didn't even start acting until he was like 50. He was just an oil man and someone, I think he got like a voiceover gig. Right. And someone's like, you got a great voice. You, you'd be a great actor. And he was like, also, this is really dating myself, but he was also the sadistic coach in the Robbie Benson basketball movie, One on One. But he was just like, he's not a star. He passed away re- a couple of years ago, but like, he made that movie because he was basically playing Tom Landry, the Cowboys coach. Yeah. And of course, Nick Nolte and Mac Davis were the stars, but that's not a classic movie unless you have John Matuzak. And, you know, I mean, you could probably name any great movie. It's like Philadelphia. Tom Hanks is a star, but you can't have it without the people playing the nurses and the caretakers and, you know, the smaller parts and, you know, 
Big Wednesday, even yeah, like, even though that wasn't a hit. No, well, I mean, well, or or was it? It just in its own way, you know what I mean? It, it's lasted. I mean, dude, I see Big Wednesday posters everywhere. Well, it's like it, it just it pains me that more people don't know that movie, and and it goes back to the character. Like Freddy Krueger was one of the surfers in the movie, Robert England, and you know, uh, uh, you know. I, I would be a great casting director because I have I have a Rolodex of character actors and like the fat detective from Miami Vice, Michael Talbot, he was in Big Wednesday and he played like a party crasher and it's a quick scene, but he was so good in it. And like just uh, Sam Melville, who is for you, you'd have to be over 50 to know who he is, but he was in that show, The Rookies. Like he played the almost the Obi Wan Kenobi surf like bear. He played bear. It was like gave all the sage advice. It's smaller role, but he made the movie. I'm telling you, it's it, it in its own its own way. People forget about that whole cast thing because you know we focus on that one person, right? Getting that one award, doing that thing, but casting is everything. It really genuinely is. That's why. The whole Louis Anderson thing, who obviously I know you know Lou, and Lou is one of my best friends. I love him. And you know this whole thing, what's going on with him with baskets and stuff like that? That the, the randomness of right place, right time, fitting a role perfectly. You know, I mean, just again, just sometimes, you know, if you if you know if you if you get it right, man, do you get it right? And that's the thing. Like you know, again, um, not to toot the horn of, of my movie, but why not? I mean, that was one of the things that I'm so glad that I can proudly say that this movie is good because the casting ended up being so great. You know, I had some friends come in at the end of the, you know, Jamie Kaler, you know, did, oh, did the day. Aaron Hayes came in, Mindy Sterling came in. Those are friends of mine that were willing to day play for me and help me out. And they, and they, and they fit their roles perfectly in there. And then the rest of the cast, like Nelson Franklin is in the film and he just got a, uh, I think he just won a SAG award or something like that. He's on veep. Okay. Um, guy with glasses uh, and veep. Um, and Leonard Roberts from Heroes is one of the our actors in there. So it's just like all this, just these. It's it it appears to be random, but there's. It, I believe that there's nothing random, but in the end, it's like people show up, and all of a sudden, like, it just all works out. So that was pretty cool. But back to the um, back to the Gary Pusey thing. So um, very rarely, when I was running the Herald Examiner, it was a huge property. You were there. I mean, oh my god! Massive, massive property. Probably a full city block around. And so you could fit multiple productions on there. That's what I specialized in when it came to independent films. And so there was one time, somehow or another, I ended up having three movies being filmed at the same time. <laughs> three independent films. One was a Jenny McCarthy movie called Dirty Love. Uh-oh. I don't remember the name of the other two movies, but both of them were like, mediocre action flicks and both of them had cast gary Busey in the film now for those of you who are not familiar enough with gary Busey and some of the things he may or may not have done to himself and maybe had an accident or two this is all post that right so he uh it's we have a day i get jen jen kane was uh, she came and helped me out she was working the main gate that day Jen Kane. Uh, Jen Kane. She, is she still over? She's still over at the comedy store. No, the legendary manager at the comedy store. She's still there. Yes. Okay. So she she's helping me out, and she's working the front gate, and um, Gary Busey pulls up to the gate. 
Now he's not on anybody's call sheet that day. Three call sheets, no Gary Busey on the call sheet. Pulls up to the gate. Jen opens the gate and says, hey, how you doing? He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. And he just walks away from his car. Doesn't toss her the keys or anything like that. Keys are still in the car and it's still running. And he just starts running away and she's like trying to stop him. She gets on the radio and this is all I hear on the radio. Brian, Brian, uh, Busey's on the Lucy? I mean, Gary Busey's loose. I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm like, what, what do you mean? Busey's on the Lucy? Gary Busey's on the loose? What are you talking about? I'm like, he's not on the call sheets anywhere. And she's like, I don't know. He just came here and he said hello. And now he's gone. I can't find him. I don't know where he is. So now everyone's looking for Gary Busey, but he's like, he's not attached to anybody. He, the, in the Jenny McCarthy movie, they, they have a scene. We had, we, we had this uh, set called the Lincoln Room from, from the White House. They had turned it into a bedroom. And in this scene, a guy is trying to do kinky sex. So they're in there filming this scene right now. Guy, this guy is naked. He's on all fours and he's got a fish sticking out of his ass. They are rolling camera. And while they're rolling, Gary Busey opens up the door, one of the set doors and just walks in and goes, hey everybody, how you doing? He's not in this movie, by the way. They're still rolling because everybody's not quite sure if Gary Busey was supposed to be in that scene or not. So they didn't stop it until finally... Like the director's like, yeah, we, uh, cut. Um, why is why is Gary Busey in our movie all of a sudden? Because <laughs> he's Gary Busey. He's Gary Busey. And then he's like, oh, I just wanted to, I just wanted to. And like, he didn't even like feel bad about wandering in while they were filming. He was just like, just want to say hi to everybody. Uh, you know, looks like you guys are doing some great stuff in here. So I'll, uh, I'll see you guys later. And then he just closed the door and left. And then he walks over to the other the other set and they're like what are you doing here and he's like oh you know i'm i'm, I'm filming today and they're like no dude you're not you're not filming today and he's like oh well it must be the other movie and they're like no you're not on that call sheet either and he's like oh all right well i'll just have some lunch and then i'll head out and he just leaves now the the, the end of this story so it does so it doesn't come out too bad by the time we're done only one of the films is still filming there gary Busey is in the last scene of the whole film and they're done with him. They, they were kind of tired of him because like he just you know comes and goes, whatever, doesn't listen. He's in his trailer and he won't come out of his trailer for the last scene. We're about 17 hours into the filming and he's supposed to be in this jail scene where he kills himself in jail. That's in that it connects the whole movie together. He decides that uh, his, he doesn't want his character to die. He was rethinking his whole role. And uh, now they've shot the whole movie at that <laughs> point. So if this character doesn't die in this thing, the rest of the movie doesn't make any sense. So for three hours, they had to try to get in, get him out of his trailer. Dude finally comes out of his trailer to uh, to do the scene, finishes the scene. Fucking, you can just tell the crew is just pissed beyond belief. And uh, he gets all done. He's like, "Hey, everybody, come bring it in, bring it in, bring it around." So let's. Uh, I want to talk to everybody, and everyone's like, "Talk to you." You made us wait for three hours, and he's like, "This is good. This is a good shoot." guys we did a, we did a good thing here filmmaking this is awesome you guys god bless man remember don't forget about jesus and everyone's like oh for fuck's sake, get this guy what movie are we doing <laughs> where's that guy with the fish <laughs> yeah i like that guy i mean i saw him once at a party in malibu and i could tell he was pretty shit-faced and so i grabbed my buddy and said hey dude Let's reenact that scene from Lethal Weapon where they're buying the heroin and Mr. Joshua puts the lighter 
So we started doing the scene right in front of him. We didn't even say hello to him. And I'm like, Mr. Joshua, your right arm, please. Thinking he'd never give it to me. And he gives it to me. He's like, I can't do a Gary Busey impression. He's like, go on, finish the scene. And he wanted me to light the lighter and burn his wrist. <laughs> I'm like, I'm dude. I'm, I'm not. I was just kidding around. He's like, well, you're not a very good actor, buddy. And he just walked off. <laughs> The funny thing is, I loved having Barone. He it's chaotic, but I understand why people use him. Well, I mean, back then, I mean, I'm going down. God, God, this is gonna be well over a decade ago. These stories that I'm talking about when he when he made these movies. I don't even know when Dirty Love came out, but um, but there there was I didn't. I mean, at the end of the day, even though people, some people were like disappointed of him. I was kind of reveling in like the insanity of like, I mean, he lived up to the hype, right? Like everything you know about him, he's living, he's living up to it. It's like, he's giving you stories to tell for the rest of your life. And I know some people are like, well, screw that. I just want to make my movie and go home. I respect that too. But for those, I, for me, I look at it and go, you, you kind of got to know what, what comes with the package. You know? Yeah. I mean, you, uh it, it's like i tell people who want to do a roast battle uh you know you're gonna hear jokes about your dead mom you're gonna hear jokes about the girlfriend who cheated on you or if you cheated on her you're gonna hear that joke uh, you're gonna hear jokes if you're balding you're gonna hear something about your hairline if you got a gut you're gonna hear something about your gut uh so you you know what you signed up for <laughs> you know it's like ralphie may and you know uh, did you know ralphie not too well no i've only met him a couple times amazing dude like would always try and get me road work with him and let me let me send your tape to my manager like i, I literally love that man but he knew what he was doing signing on for roast battle it did not end very well for him but i don't think he was mad he, he knew like if you hire gary Busey, you get the good acting from buddy holly and big wednesday and lethal weapon but you also get the guy from celebrity apprentice <laughs> so hire uh you know uh edward james almost if you just want someone who's going to show up do their lines and leave and i don't think you know the thing is he just doesn't care I mean, a lot of these guys, and I'm going to guess, I'm not going to assume this, but they, uh, they don't, they know what they're being hired for. They know I, why they're being brought in. Like, they're like, look, you, you need my name. And this is, I'm talking about back then. I, well, I don't, and you so, know, you might be, you know, I'm, I've been around so many delusional people. I don't know if they do know, oh, I'm being hired for the whole wacky package. He probably thought at that well, time. the wackiness of it. He's being hired because he's Gary Busey. But I mean, to me, he must know he's insane. I, I, can't, I don't know. Like if you hire, uh, you know, like I'm an 80s metal guy. Uh, you know, if you hire Vinnie Vincent, the guitar player who does overextended solos and, you know, the complete wackiness in his mind, he probably thinks they're hiring me because I'm a great guitar player. It's like, no, they... They're hiring you because you're fucking insane. And you're <laughs> you're going to give this project energy. I mean, Vinny Vincent's a guy who got kicked out of the Vinny Vincent invasion. <laughs> like, that's fucking impossible. Right. You know, you, yes, you're a good guitar player, but you're also clinically insane. <laughs> All right. Uh, I try and go every podcast to squeeze in a Vinny Vincent. That's all right. I'm obsessed with him. 
Uh, by the way, uh, I, I I will say my other favorite uh, person that uh, filmed at the Herald a couple times was uh, Steven Seagal. <laughs> and um, I learned the uh, layout board technique. Uh, and the layout board technique was that um, I guess he wasn't big into learning his lines for the movie that he had. So for those, uh, you know what layout board is, right? Like it's, it's I like, don't. It's a, it's a protective boarding that they put down on the ground to protect, like if it's hardwood floors oh, right, or whatever right. for production. So as they're dragging stuff in, you're not wrecking stuff. And they're like huge, big um, cardboard squares. They had the PAs write all the uh, his lines on the layout board, these big, huge, squared cardboard things, and they had to hold them up behind the actor that he was talking to so he could do his lines. And I loved the, the being... For me, it was moments like that, like being the fly on the wall on sets and seeing that kind of stuff happening, and you're like, oh, my God. You know, most times production is extremely boring, Thank you so much for bringing right. some insanity and some color and something that I can take with me for the rest of my life. Like I got Steven Seagal stories now. You know what I mean? Right. Like he could have just walked in, mumbled a few things, walked out and been like, yeah, Seagal was boring. No, no, he didn't want to do his lines and he just wanted to, he just wanted to just be able to see him right behind the guy in the, as big a handwriting as possible. Right. Well, now he's getting so fat, he's Chinese. He probably, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Man. I also loved how quickly, you know, because he's all about fighting, right? The fight scenes. And I, I loved seeing how quickly, like, he would get out of the scene to let the stunt guy even do the basic stuff was awesome. And so when I watched the movie. Do you remember what movie so, it was? Hard Target? I, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I know I should remember that. That sounds about right, though. He hasn't made a ton. We well, hit a real nice peak of uh, no. I'm sorry. Hard Target was the great Jean Claude Van Damme movie. With speaking of character actors, this guy makes every fucking movie he's in. The great Lance Henriksen, <laughs> original choice for Terminator. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, Lance Henriksen. He I saw he he filmed with the Herald once along with OJ. Yeah, they didn't do Millennium at the. No, he was in. So a lot of these guys, they come, they do, they day play on on either television shows. Or the day played on independent films, you know. Ivan Drago showed up one day. I was stoked about that. A great, legendary Dolph Lundgren. Ah, oh, man, I'll tell you what, aging well. I saw him the other. Well, yeah, he. I won't say the gym, but if you if you know me, you know the gym I'm talking about. It rhymes with bagels and locks. Uh, he goes there, and you know I'm as straight as an arrow, no curve. He's a good-looking dude, even at what is he close to 60 yeah if uh, not more um well i mean see i'm 49 he's gotta be probably 10 years older he looks good man yeah um and he was taking pictures with like the maintenance staff like he that's like it made me a bigger fan like yeah. oh this guy's cool he gets it uh a little rough in the uh, expendables uh that cast those group shots in high def <laughs> some people didn't uh the age didn't catch up with him as well listen we all get old I got no problem with that, but uh, and I'm the biggest Sylvester Stallone fan, and not for Rocky or Rambo, but like for his lesser known movies, like Nighthawks is gets back to casting. Rutger Hauer is the villain, yeah, but Rutger Hauer has not aged well. Like he, I was just going to ask you if he was still alive. So he, is. oh yeah, he's. Okay. Uh, I think the last big thing he did was one of the might have been the first Christian Bale uh, Batman. Okay. In which his name was Mr. Earl. 
Uh, but in Nighthawks, and that's 1982, so I realized, you know, whatever that movie was, 2010, you're gonna like change. But like, it's like, wow, man, what a bummer. I mean, and it's the same thing with my 80s metal bands. You look at a group shot of rat. <laughs> And you look at a group shot of rat now, you don't know if it's rat or the California raisins. <laughs> like, wow, I didn't know rats sang. I heard it through the grapevine. <laughs> I know we Brigno, by the way, also holds together well. Yeah, Saw I him. mean, uh, for a guy who, you know, steroids can really wreak havoc. Is he a steroid you. guy? Oh, my God. Okay. You, you'd have to be in the 70s. You're a bodybuilder. Uh, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we still, we still. He's still, you know, and I'm going, I'm going to look going back about three years, but yeah, no, he was still, he was still pretty. Uh, oh, he looks great. I mean, Schwarzenegger's. I, I wouldn't say let himself go. Once again, I know we all get older, but like, he, Lou looks like he could compete in like a master's division. Like yeah. he, he's uh, Schwarzenegger. Like he's a bit of a gut now, and it's like, it's like kind of his moves. You know, it's like fuck. Schwarzenegger or uh, Verena looks like all right. Stallone looks good. Yeah, uh, pretty clear that obviously he still works out quite a bit. You know, that's the thing. But I guess you know if that's what that's your thing, you're probably never going to stop unless your body tells you you got to stop. But they, obviously they're not. I, you just, I, I always wonder with a lot of those guys that like their body is just going to get so beat up that you know they just give up. At, you know, like a retired you know athlete that just like completely lets themselves go after all their years of training just because it just hurts to work out, you know? Well, you really see that with pro wrestlers, like the ones that live, yeah. uh, you know, they just like, I mean, steroids literally increase your bones. Like your bones get so big and your muscles that they separate. Like, you know, like a lot of steroid guys, they, uh, uh, forget the, what the word is they uh fr not fracture but their uh quads separate from their leg like because their quads get so big they like, break away from the fucking bones <laughs> and so they tear their, their i guess it's muscle tear uh same thing with calves and like so oh, that sounds great by the way uh since you're so big into production uh, me and my two buddies wub and uh joey larkin we just we want to remake just the first five minutes of cobra <laughs> okay you uh maybe uh call we could talk we can you know i'm obsessed with the first five minutes is it is it, uh, I, I you're gonna have to remind me what happens is there any explosions or any car chases or it's the best product placement in the history of movies so the bad typical 80s bad guy trench coat bad skin kind of looks like a more a slightly better looking edward james omos definition of a character actor his right, imdb right. page is like three thousand credits he's also <laughs> in the new bud light commercial with uh, troy aikman i literally got oh my god that's the bad guy from cobra he's working <laughs> he goes into the supermarket he's gonna blow it up if they don't bring in the media and all of a sudden stallone <laughs> somehow worms his way into the produce section he grabs the pa of the the supermarket and right behind him is a huge pepsi sign and to the right is a huge coarse light <laughs> display it, like it made no sense that he's <laughs> somehow wormed his way in to the pepsi sign and then he cracks open a coarse light and starts <laughs> drinking it and then he gets on the pa and like hey dirtbag <laughs> you wasted the kid 
you're a lousy shot. I don't like lousy shots. Now I'm going to waste you. I just want to remake that scene. Just that, and end it right there before yeah. you waste anybody. Right. You can then, get away with that. And then he, well, there's one more thing we'd like to add on that. Okay, all right. Okay. I mean, you're a filmmaker. <laughs> Fixed on iTunes and uh, Amazon. Amazon. And VOD. It's just fixed. It's not fixed. the fix. F I X X E D. Fixed. Like just, getting fixed, man. Gotta spell it out for my fan base. Snippy. My fan base probably uh, asks how to make a Bud Light. Um, <laughs> so then he gets behind the bad guy. He comes through the walk in freezer. Now, I don't know how he got into this because it's one door. Now, I'm probably overanalyzing the scene. There's your first mistake. And the bad guy is like, hey, man, I want the media in here. I'm going to blow this place up. Stallone readjusts his toothpick, which he had in his mouth the whole movie. He goes, go ahead. I don't shop here. That's just good riding. And then he kills him. I'm obsessed with Cobra. Uh, it's always on. It's like it's like Boogie Nights. It's always on. You uh, you know who you need to have. You you could you could literally have a, spe- a very special episode. I book book him. I don't even know who you're going to tell. Rob me. Baxter. But get him on. Do you know Baxter? I you remember Baxter? Look at Rodney Dangerfield back in the day. He was he he's the guy. Look, I'll show you a picture. The name sounds familiar. As soon as you see him, like oh that guy. You and he could probably go on for three hours into specifics of any movie of anything. Well, he, just, he is just like you with that kind of stuff. Yeah, you, most people like. I envy it, by the way. I don't. I don't have that type of memory. Well, I just uh, either I was lucky, or I mean, you grew up in the same era, but like they don't make movies like Cobra anymore. It's the Fast no. and Furious with you know CGI up the ass, and like you know. There's no CGI in Cobra. It's just tons of bad acting, over the top zingers, and like you know, Predator. Look at Predator. It's one of the most iconic action movies ever. Might be, like we were saying, for an ensemble cast, yeah. the eight worst actors ever jammed in a movie together. <laughs> like, and I love Bill Duke. He's actually a good actor, and Carl Weathers isn't bad. But, like, you got Shane Black, never acted before in his life. Oh, he wrote the movie. Let's throw him some lines. <laughs> Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura, pro wrestler, never acted. Let's make him one of the feature guys. And the Indian, Sonny Landon. Oh, Billy Bear from 48 Hours. I have an autographed picture by my bed. Every girl who's made love to me in the last seven years <laughs> has look looked at an autographed picture of the Indian from Predator. <laughs> It's the only person I do an impression of, and it's so spot on. Go ahead. Okay. I didn't know if you were waiting for me to ask. So. No, no. But since I, it's a good way to leave the podcast. Okay. Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud and iTunes, fixed on iTunes, Amazon, Amazon VOD. Please buy it. Rent it. It's, Brian's a great guy. It's not many people you do comedy with for almost 20 years and you remain in touch with and actually like them. This business, you're around people for two years, they're out. Sorry, guys. Tough business. Still action, sound, speed. And this is a scene where uh, Bill Duke is killing the pig and predator and the Indian figures out that uh, Jesse Ventura's body is gone. 
Oh, I'm calling action. Yeah, sound, speed. Oh, so, yeah, okay, a, sorry, sorry. Action. I thought you were gonna say sound and speed. Oh, yeah. I thought you said sound. No, speed. you say it. I'm right. the actor. Sorry, sorry. Cut. <laughs> Quiet on set. Orange sound. Sound speed. And action. Major, you better take a look at this. Blaine's body is gone. Billy, you know something, man. I'm scared, Poncho. You ain't afraid of no man. There's something out there, and it's hunting us one at a time. We're all going to die. It's a Sonny Landham, L-A-N-D-H-A-M. Look him up on the IMDb. He's also the sensei and best of the best, too. A little out of his range on that one, I thought, trying to you know, do dialogue with Eric Roberts. Uh, and also a Billy Bear in 48 Hours and a cop in the uh, the Warriors 1980 Walter Hill film. They're remaking it. Sacrilege. <laughs>